All right. Well, hey, Unfolding Grace, as a uh, church, both together, those of you who are gathering, uh, as well as separate, those who are still watching online, we have been traveling through the scriptures. Unfolding Grace is 40 really lengthy readings in the Bible connecting the beginning of all things in Genesis to the consummation of all things in the book of Revelation. Like in the readings, we're tracing the thread of God's redemption from the loss in paradise through its complete restoration that we read about in the last book of the Bible. And in the sermons, uh, your pastors, uh, Trey, Michael, Ben, and myself are kind of trying to communicate how each of these different stories like fit with the main story and move the main storyline of the Bible along and, and how each of these readings point to and leave us longing for Jesus Christ. And so we said, I think it was the first or second in the series, we said that this is like unapologetically a Christological reading of the Bible. Like we're reading the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. Like we're following the storyline of the Bible with a firm conviction that the Hebrew scriptures testify about Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that it is the intention of the Holy Spirit who is the one who oversaw and is the divine writer of scripture. I believe it's the intention of the Holy Spirit that every reading in the Old Testament, every story, like every promise for more or better or something that is permanent, every failure on the part of God's covenant people, every hero that God uses to bring them back to him, every prophet, every priest, every king, I believe it's the intention of the Holy Spirit to leave two words echoing down through our hearts. And these are the two words, not this, not this. Like as you read the Bible, you should, as you're reading the Old Testament, those should be the words that are kind of echoing through your mind, not this. Like Eve is promised like a child that will crush the serpent's head and then she gives birth to Cain and Abel and Seth and you finish the story and you hear it in your heart, not this. Like God floods the earth and rescues one righteous family and starts fresh with like a new creation and yet you hear at the end of that story, not this. God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. He gives birth to Isaac. And at the end of that story, you're left thinking, not this, not, not this. Like the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They cry out and God raises up Moses and as good as he is, not this. And Israel's delivered from bondage and given a new way to live under the law of God. And as good as that law is, not this. And they're given a sacrificial system so that they can remain in fellowship with God despite their sins. And as good as that system is, not this. 
And then they build a tabernacle so that God himself can dwell among them in their midst. And as awesome as that is, that idea, that thought that God is with them, you know, not this, not this. Like Israel is finally brought into the promised land. And then God raises up hero after hero after hero to deliver them from the enemies around them and in their midst. And still you think, well, not this, not this guy, not this person, not this. And over and over and over again, you hear that echoing in your heart, not this. And yet God is still moving his ultimate plan forward like it cannot be thwarted even by the disobedience of his covenant people, as we see in today's story. You can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're reading chapters 8 through 11 this week in Unfolding Grace. It says, verse 1, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, I love this, behold, you are old. Isn't that nice? Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king whom shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip and to the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young man and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But they refused to obey the voice of Samuel, 
And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the, into the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is the word of God. And so church, what do you make of this story? I mean, Samuel, first of all, is a very interesting character. Like he is the last and final judge of Israel during the era of the judges. And yet he really is a prophet and a priest and a judge. And so what Samuel, this righteous leader, tries to do is extend the peace and stability that Israel has enjoyed under his leadership by appointing his sons as judges, and yet they don't follow his ways. Like they pervert justice, they're they're corrupt, they take bribes, and so the elders of Israel ask for a more permanent solution. Give us a king. So what's wrong with that? Right? I mean, after all, God had promised a number of times to provide for Israel a king. In fact, even in the the book of Deuteronomy, in the law of God, he had given direction on the appointment of the king, like what kind of king you should appoint and what he should do, what what his practices are. So what's wrong with the demand? Well, guys, it's, it's really all about their motivation, about their reason for seeking a king in the first place. Like two times, you see it so clearly in this passage, two different times at the beginning and at the end of their conversations, kind of bracketing in this episode, they say basically, we want to be like everybody else. We just want to be like everybody else. Like what's the big deal? We just want to be like other people. We want to be like the other nations. Verse five, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then in verse 19 and 20, really even more forcefully, by this time, it's become a clear demand. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Like in this demand, the leaders of the nation of Israel, the elders are both rejecting God as their king and they're rejecting their identity as a distinct people, their identity as Israel. It's like, it's like your own kid telling you one day, I just want to be like the other families in our neighborhood. I just want to be like the rest of the people at school. Like, why can't we be like everyone else? Why can't we just fit in? I'm tired of like feeling weird when I'm with other people. I don't want to be this anymore. Like, can I change my name? Like, can I be Smith or Jones? Like, that's what Israel is doing to Yahweh. Like, God was supposed to be their real king. They were supposed to depend on him for absolutely everything. But as you read the story of the nation of Israel, God was never enough for them, was he? And so now they want God to give them some other source other than himself, some other source of happiness and security and direction. 
Like as you read through the Old Testament, every time God does something good for them, it's almost like they're saying, what else you got? Like they don't mind having God in their life as a backup plan, (laughs) as a safety net, but the bottom line is they really don't trust God. They really don't trust him. I mean, they've never really trusted him. Trusted him enough to say, God, we will worry about obeying you and let you worry about everything else for us. Like we'll put our energy and our attention just to following you and all the other stuff that that seems so trivial, like, you know, food. We're just gonna trust you with that. Like they've never done that. Like they've never said, you know what, God, we're gonna seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that all these other things are gonna be added to us. Like they wanna say with their lips that they're following God, without really having to depend on him. And so you need to understand that this kind of conditional obedience is disobedience. Like when you say, God, I will obey you if, or God, I will follow you as long as, like as long as there's some kind of a contract with God that if he meets those requirements, you're gonna follow him, that is not Obedience, it is rebellion, it's disobedience. It is a lack of trust to say to God that you will follow him while insisting on a number of other things to be present before you can really feel secure. I mean, Israel does that, we do that. And you know how it's super easy to trust God when everything is going right. Like it's really easy, right, to... Trust God when everything that you feel like you need for life to be happy, to be secure, to be complete is right in front of you. Like your job is secure, like you're moving ahead, your bank account is full, your house is almost paid off, your marriage is great, your kids are awesome, right? You're healthy. But if even one of those things is taken away from you, then all your security goes out the window. Like for Israel and for us, it really is much easier to trust God. (laughs) It would be way, way easier to trust God if we can control him. But God cannot be controlled. Like, so they want a king that they can control. They want somebody that they can depose if... (laughs) You know, if he doesn't give them what they want, they want somebody whose sole attention is making them happy and giving them what they want. And God won't do that. And so they come to God with a list of commands in addition to himself. And they say, we will follow you if you meet these stipulations. And God calls that a rejection of himself because it is a rejection of trust in him. Because to know God is to trust God. Like if you say you know God, that means you're trusting in him. You're leaning on him for your future, for your health, for your marriage, for your life, for your eternity. Why is it that we can trust God with eternity, but not with the next 50 years? Like when you don't trust someone, then you feel like you have to control them, right? Like that's what contracts are for. You don't go to the car dealership and buy a car and just shake hands and say, hey, you know what? My money will be in the bank. You can trust me. 
No, you're going to sign your name about 10 different times. And you don't go in and buy a house and you end the contract by just giving them a high five. No, you're going to sign your name and your initials until your arm hurts, right? Because you don't trust them and they don't trust you. They need a contract. And that's what Israel is doing with God right here. Like they want a king that they can see with their eyes. And that they feel like they can control. They have some sway over. Like give us a king like all the nations. Someone to go out before us and fight our battles. This is a rejection of God himself. Who by the way just a chapter earlier. Has won a great victory for Israel. That, le- that gives, leads to a time of extended peace and safety. And yet that was not enough. In fact they go on to say so. Give us this king so that we also may be like all the nations. Like this is a rejection of their identity as Israelites. Like we're tired of being different. We're tired of not fitting in. Man, I'm tired of being the odd man out. Like we're tired of being holy as you are holy. Like the true definition of holiness doesn't doesn't simply mean pure, It means distinct. It means different. It means other than. And so when God calls a nation to be a holy priesthood for himself, what he's saying is, my calling for you is that you would be unlike the nations. And yet they want to be just like the nations. And so if this is such a terrible idea, you got to wonder why God says yes to it. Like, because this is a terrible idea. Like God agrees with Samuel, this is selfish, this is wrong, the motivation is terrible, they've forsaken me, they've rejected Yahweh as king, they've rejected their identity as Israelites. If it's such a terrible idea, then why does God say yes? Well, one reason he says yes, and we've already seen this, like in the people of Israel in the wilderness crying out for meat to eat, God gives them that as a judgment, Because sometimes the most severe judgment God can bring on us is saying yes to our prayers. Like how many times have you prayed for something only to say, oh, God, why did you say yes to that? Like I wanted it so bad it consumed me. God, give me a husband, give me a husband. If I had a husband, if I had a wife, then that would be it. And then you get one and you're like, Give me another husband. Give me another, right? Like, that's how we are. Like, we pray and pray, and if God says yes, sometimes that could be the most severe judgment on us, and yet, his mercy often comes in the form of a no, because he knows that that thing we're asking for will consume us, will make our lives unravel, It's interesting that the elders of Israel had rejected the sons of Samuel because it says that they took bribes. And yet then through the prophet, God says, these are the ways of the king. Literally, this is the justice of the king. Like if you want justice because you're rejecting them, which is good because they're bad. However, this is the justice of the king. And the dominant word in that description is take. You want to see the justice of the king that you want? He will take and he will take 
and he will take, and he will take, and he will take, and he will take. Like six different times, God, through the prophet, says, this king that you want is simply going to take from you. Like you want a king that will guarantee prosperity and guarantee security, but he's actually going to take those things from you. You want a king that you think that you will be able to control, but this king will control you. In fact, the reality is when you have other kings instead of God over your life, those kings won't save you. They will always enslave you. Like if you give yourself to another king other than Yahweh, like as shiny as it is, as big as the promise, that king will not rescue you. That king will not save you. That king will enslave you. We become slaves to whatever we depend on for happiness and security, be it your marriage or your career or some level of success and acclaim or pleasure or family or whatever. Because the truth is everyone has a king. Everyone has a king. And that king is whatever you must have, whatever you cannot live without to be happy and to be secure. Like these kings make all of their subjects into servants. That's how it works. And so what is your king? Because we all have one. Paul put it this way, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. See, everyone serves something. There's no exceptions. You can either serve sin, which leads to death, or you can serve God, which leads to life. You will either be enslaved by someone who will bring you life, and the only one who does that is God. Or you'll be enslaved to something or someone that ultimately leads to death. Like you read this story and you have to think, okay, so did God say yes simply to judge the nation of Israel? Because if that's the case, this is a bummer of a story, right? Like I'm still kind of traumatized by last week's sermon. <laughs> last week's reading in the book of Judges, that was so dark so sad, so broken, so vile, so depressing. Are we going to have another depressing sermon here? Like if, if all God is doing is judging his people, then this is really a bummer. But here's the good news. Like I think the reading this week, the introduction to the reading in Unfolding Grace like is excellent. It really captures like what God is doing by granting this demand from these sinful people. In it, the author writes, when Israel asked for a king, God disapproves. Why? Because God looks on the heart and discerns the people's motive. They do not want God to rule them through a faithful king. They want to rule them themselves through a king like all the nations do. Yet the Lord graciously provides a king anyway. Astonishingly, Israel rejects God by requesting a king, yet God grants one to bless them and the world in the end. 
And then the author makes this statement that just blows my mind. It's so true and rich. He says, this is how God works. He folds even our rebellion into his plan to do us good. See, they wanted an earthly king, something temporary. But God had something greater in mind, something that this earthly king would ultimately lead to. The writer writes, he eventually does it again through the cross of King Jesus, where humanity's rejection of God resulted in lavish grace for all who receive it. One page after another, the Bible unfolds the story of God's unswerving commitment to bless us in spite of ourselves. Because God has a king for us. And his name is Jesus. You see, King Saul ultimately made Israel his servants. But King Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, many in Israel ultimately had to die for King Saul's sins. But King Jesus chose to die for our sins. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And so we have to choose our king. And I just still wonder, why would anyone choose another king instead of Jesus? Like when you know if you've lived long enough, you know that that thing that you chase after for pleasure that promises fulfillment leaves you more empty. If you've lived any amount of time and pursued pleasure or fame or family as your identity, you're always left wanting. Why would anyone choose anything but Jesus to be their king? Like at the end of this story, like at the end of chapter 11, where we're reading through this week, you're left with this thought echoing in your mind. Not this. Not this. Not this king. There has to be more. And so you scramble through the pages of Scripture, page after page, story after story, book after book, looking for something more. And it's not this, not this, not this. And then you turn the page to Matthew chapter 1, and it says the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. And your heart says, but this, like this is it. This is what everything else told me about and this is what every story left me longing for. Like when asked by Pontius Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am not a king like all the nations. You see, this is how God works. He folds even our rebellion into his plan 
to do us good. Timothy Keller puts it this way in The Reason for God. He writes, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. It makes me think of that old movie, now old, Jerry Maguire. Where at the end of it, you have Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire, saying to this woman, you complete me. And if I just ruined the movie for you, you had 20 years. Come on. <laughs> you complete me. Guys, the reality is no husband, no wife, no child, no job, no career, no advancement, no acclaim can complete you. The only thing that can satisfy your heart, the only one who can complete you is Jesus Christ. The only one who can take even your rebellion and fold it into his plan for your good is Jesus. Paul puts it this way. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Your sin, you cannot out the grace of God. And then Paul begins to address, if this grace is so great, why keep on sinning? And his answer is, are you crazy? Have you seen Jesus? What can we, like how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? See, God is not the author of sin, but neither is it out of his control. Jesus will fold even your rebellion into his plan for your good and for his glory. Guys, that's our king.